Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to be able to come here together as a family to open up your word, Lord, to hear from you your words, Lord. I pray that you would take this time. I pray that you have already begun to prepare our hearts to be the soil to receive the seed of the word of God, the the soil that lets it take root into our lives so that it would spring up and grow and affect those around us as well. Lord, I thank you for this book of Ephesians. I thank you for the Apostle Paul and for his obedience to you. Lord, I pray that you would just bless this now and use me in this time. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You know, last week when we were talking about Ephesians chapter 2, and we saw that Paul spends quite a bit of time, especially at the end here of the chapter, talking about how Jesus came in and broke down the wall between the Jews and the Gentiles. And he came in and he said, you know, it's not just that he made a way for the Gentiles, which by the way, that wouldn't have been a complete surprise to the Jews. You know, there is prophecy throughout the Old Testament and Isaiah specifically that says that God is going to um, make a way or bring the, the Gentiles in as well. And so if they had studied at all their, their uh, Old Testament, they would have known that God was going to make a way for the Gentiles as well. But they never imagined in a bajillion years that what God meant was they will be equal with you Jews as well. And so when Paul, at any point, when Paul begins to talk to the Jews and, you know, they were expecting a Messiah to come and they were waiting. So when he was like, this man, Jesus, he was the Messiah. And they're like, oh my goodness, that sounds really good. And then Paul says, um, and then he's also going to make a way for the Gentiles. They're like, well, we kind of remember something about that. And he says, and you're going to be equals. And they were like, what? In fact, Um, let's try something. I'm going to say, you know, that God broke down the wall so that the Gentiles will be equal with the Jews. And I want you to all just gasp all together. Okay. So I'm Paul and I'm, and I'm talking to you and I'm like, and yes, and God has made a way and he's broken down the wall so that the Jews and the Gentiles are equal. (laughs) I love that. That's mild. That's a mild reaction because what we're going to see today is at one point, like almost every time, they wanted to kill him. (laughs) They wanted to kill him for even saying that. But see, he takes it to this place and Paul's not making it up. He's going to say, this was by divine revelation that God told me that this was the case. And it really blows my mind and it blows Paul's mind also that it's Paul that he chose to share that with to embrace it because if anybody was going to not receive that information, it was going to be the Apostle Paul. I mean, that guy wouldn't darken the doorway of a Gentile unless, of course, it was to drag them off to prison and to execution for being a follower of the way. So it blows Paul's mind. But uh, anyway, he's, he's sitting here and he's saying like the two have become one. Remember, we talked about the idea of combining red liquid with blue liquid, and it becomes purple liquid in a new thing, and it's now inseparable. This new uh, creation that he's created, two have become one, thus making peace. And he says, and destroy, putting to death the enmity. Do you know what enmity means? Just hatred. 
That's the word means hatred. And he says he's coming to put an end between the hatred between the Jews and the Gentiles by knitting them together as one new creation. Paul's going to say right here in the first verse of chapter 3, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, he's basically saying, I'm a prisoner right now because of that message that I just wrote to you about. Because of that message, because of the, the, uh, the new equality that God has established between Jew and Gentile, I'm a prisoner right now. And if you don't remember it, let me refresh your memory, okay? You can look this up back in Acts 21 and 22. At one point, Paul was back in, uh, after his third missionary journey, he goes back into Jerusalem because he really wants to celebrate a feast day. And while he's there, the other apostles say to him, hey, would you take these other guys, um, in with you and go through the purification process um, with you. And so Paul agrees and they go into the temple. And while they're there in the temple completing the purification so that they could celebrate the feast day, there was some Jews from Asia that Paul had maybe ticked off a little bit that they came in and they recognized Paul. And they didn't recognize the guys that he was with. And so they assumed that those guys were Gentiles that Paul had brought into the temple. And they raise up the alarm. They're like, this guy, he is teaching everybody that they don't have to be Jewish and that there's uh, another way and that the Gentiles are equal. And look, he's brought in Gentiles into the the temple. And so they grab Paul and they, um, they start to beat him. And uh, luckily for Paul, right next to the temple is the Fortress Antonio, which is where the Roman guard was stationed. And so they see this going on, and and they run down, and it says that when the Jews saw the Roman guard coming in, they kind of backed off Paul. And they grabbed Paul, and they brought him out of the the temple um, courtyard up into the Antonio Fortress to try to kind of pull him out of that, because they didn't want this guy to get killed. And so as soon as they're kind of out of sight, Paul stops them, and he says to the guard, "Um, excuse me. Would it be okay if I, if you, if I spoke to the, the people? Now, the guy says, first of all, he's like, oh, you can speak Greek. And he's like surprised that Paul can speak to him because he's like, aren't you that Egyptian that caused all that trouble? And Paul's like, uh, no. But here's the amazing part. The Roman guard says, okay. Just, do you understand? They just pulled Paul out of this huge, like, What's the word I'm looking for? A mob scene, okay? They pull him away to keep him from getting killed. They don't know who he is, obviously. Um, and Paul says, oh, could I just talk to them? And the guard says, okay, go ahead. And I'm thinking, that's a divine appointment right there. Because why would he do that ever? He'd be like, no, shut up. You're a person. No. So he says, okay. So Paul goes out. Here's divine appointment number two. The mob that was just about ready to kill him. Paul just comes out and he just goes, shh. And they all quiet right down, like it was quiet. Paul then at that moment gives them his entire testimony. He's like, I'm a Jew. I persecuted the people, the follower of the way. I dragged them off to prison. He says, even your high priest can testify to that because they gave me the letters. He says, but I was on the road to Damascus, letter in hand, to go and get followers of the way, and Jesus spoke to me out of heaven and knocked me to the ground, and he literally gives them his conversion story on the road to Damascus and how Jesus told him the entire story, and he converted, and then he says to them, and he told me that I was to bring the same message of the Messiah 
to the Gentiles. Now, the minute he said Gentiles, they lose their minds again. And they say, take this fellow away. He's not fit to live on the earth. And they go at him again. And so the guard grabs him and they take him inside. And uh, they say, you know what we need to do? We need to find out who this guy is. And the best way for us to do this is just to question him through scourging. That means that they're just going to hold him and whip him until he confesses to being somebody. So they grab Paul, and they have uh, the um, guards holding him on this side. And Paul just says, um, excuse me, uh, before you scourge me, is it legal to scourge a Roman citizen? And the guy with the whip is like, <laughs> oh, hold on a minute. So then they go and get the commander. They're like, this guy's a Roman. And so the commander comes down, and he says, are you a Roman? And Paul says, yes. And he says, well, the commander says, I bought my citizenship by, from a tidy sum. And Paul says, I was born a Roman. And uh, it, by the way, was illegal to bind and to scourge without cause a Roman citizen. And so it says that those who were about to question him um, went away. So you can see the guys with the whips are like <laughs> backing away from the scene there. And so they, they decide, obviously, that they can't scourge this man who's a Roman citizen, but they do hold him bound until the next day. And they bring him, Paul, to, before, and they call the Jewish council together, and they set Paul in front of the Jewish council, and they kind of step back, and they let the Jewish council talk to Paul. And Paul <clears throat> um, begins to speak to them again. And uh, the high priest uh, says, um, slap him in the face. And so one of the guys slaps Paul in the face. And Paul looks at the, the high priest who he doesn't know is the high priest. And he says, you whitewashed tomb. <laughs> he basically says, you look clean on the outside, but you're, you're filthy and dead on the inside. And then they're like, <gasps> how dare you say that to the high priest? And to which Paul says, oh, sorry, I didn't know it was the high priest. But then what he does is he figures out that in the room are Sadducees and Pharisees. And he knows that Sadducees and Pharisees, they don't agree. Pharisees, you know, um, they believe in the resurrection of the dead. And the Sadducees, they don't believe in any resurrection of the dead. They're sad, you see. <laughs> so Paul says to the whole group, look, I'm here because I contend for the resurrection of the dead. And then that throws both, because he knew that, he, he knew, news, he knews that, both groups would then begin to argue with one another and forget that he was even standing there. And that's what happens. And then the Pharisees say, there's nothing wrong with this man, Paul. You know, and they forget exactly why it was that he was there. Um, <clears throat> so then the, the Romans come in and they, they grab Paul out of there again. And, uh, and they hold him for a little bit longer until... Um, they say, you know what, Paul, would you be willing to go to Jerusalem? I I'm kind of truncating the story for the sake of time, but um, they basically want to drag it on and on and on. And finally, Paul just says, look, I'm a Roman. If you're going to hold me and not let me go, I want to go to Caesar. It was his right as a Roman citizen to go before Caesar. And so essentially what happens is the governor says, you want to go to Caesar? Then you'll go to Caesar. Um, and so what happens is they put Paul, and this, you, again, you can read through this through the rest of Acts. That's the whole rest of Acts is the story of Paul going to Rome as a prisoner. You know, that's when he's on that ship and they go here and they go there and then they get out in the sea and they're at Fair Havens and he's like, we should stay. And they're like, no, let's go. And, the, and then they get into this big storm and they end up on the island of Malta, like shipwrecked. Remember that story? You know, and what an amazing story that is because you would look at a shipwreck and, and being lost at sea like that for so many days um, as something really, really bad and dangerous. But what does God do? He uses a storm and a shipwreck and Paul 
to minister to this island people on Malta so that for three months they can hear the gospel. So don't ever ask me, what about the man on the island when it comes to finding out about Jesus? Because Jesus used a shipwreck and a storm and a dude to go to the man on the island. So if there is a man on an island, he'll find a way for him to know and accept Jesus Christ. Amen? After that, they finally make it to Rome. It says that when they got there, and it says that, that the guard turned Paul over to the, the captain of the guards. And I mean, that can you imagine that? Roman is like, I'm, I need a vacation. Here you go. I need a vacation. I'm done with this. He's been traveling for months. He's been shipwrecked. He's had to swim to shore. There was a snake. You know, all, he's done. And it says that Paul was turned over to the guard at which he then was, he was a prisoner of Rome at this point, right? A prisoner of Rome for Paul meant that he was under house arrest at this time. You know, and house arrest for, you know, I don't know if anybody's ever experienced house arrest here. Don't raise your hands. But it's, you know, you get a little ankle transmitter and that means you can't leave your house or else the transmitter uh, signal goes off and then the marshals show up and um, I don't know. I heard, I don't know for, I don't know personally, I a friend, I heard from a friend. Um, for Paul, it was similar, but Paul actually was responsible for renting his own dwelling place. So he rented a house um, and he was not, uh, and he had to provide for his own food and, and, and uh, all that, all his own need. He had to take that on. Um, but he was allowed the freedom to receive guests and, and, you know, he wasn't in some dank, dark dungeon. He was in kind of his own rented apartment. However, Paul, the entire time that he was there, was still chained to a Roman guard because they had to make sure he was still a prisoner. He couldn't run away. And so house arrest in the first century when Paul was means that he would have a shackle on his wrist that was connected to a chain that was connected to the, the belt or the waist of a Roman soldier all the time. All the time. Now to you and I, we might think, man, what a drag to have to be chained to a Roman soldier. And Paul looked at that and be like, captive audience, man, all day, every single day. He can't go anywhere. Also, you know that Paul wrote four letters while he was in this time. He wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and I think he wrote the letter to Philemon at this time. And so what may have seemed like a a, a, a stop in his ministry. Like Paul could have looked at this and said, man, this time of arrest is a real bummer because now I can't be out there about ministry. This was an opportunity for Paul. He had visitors coming in. He had people coming to see him. He was writing these epistles. He had a, a captive audience all day, every day. Um, and here's the thing. It wasn't like Paul was sitting in his house scribbling away, you know, chained, <laughs> scribbling away. Paul didn't physically write these letters with his own hand. At least the Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, he had a scribe. So what's Paul doing all day long when he's writing these letters? He's dictating everything you read in these letters to a guy that's, you know, furiously scribbling away because, you know, all of chapters one, two, and three are basically one sentence. Uh, <clears throat> as he's scribbling away, he's dictating this. Who's hearing all of it? Roman guard. Right here. In fact, turn with me just for a second over to Philippians. It's just a little bit beyond. Philipp it's like a couple of pages to the right. Philippians chapter 1, same time. Paul wrote this letter at the same time. Chapter 1, verses, uh, where is it? 12 and 13. 
He's writing to them and he's saying, but I want you to know, brethren, that the thing which happened to me actually turned out for the further of the furtherance of the gospel so that it's become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. You understand he's saying that the guards that were listening to me preach to my friends coming in and write these letters. They, it was made evident. The whole thing was made evident to them. Now flip over to Colossians, the next book over to the very last chapter. Colossians chapter 4, verse 17, and this is Paul kind of ending the letter, and he says, And to um, Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have perceived in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Uh, oh, hang on a second. Where did I? Hold on. Oh, excuse me. It's in Philippians. Philippians 4, 22. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. You see, he said in, in the Philippians, he said, you know what? All of the palace guard, are, it's made evident to them, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he ends the letter saying, you know, especially those who are Caesar's household greeting you. I can't help but think that there were some of these Roman guards chained to Paul that got saved because the, the evidence of the gospel was made clear to them as he was in prison. And isn't that a very productive use of time? Don't you think? Paul could have sat there wallowing in his situation and be like, woe is me, I'm chained up, I'm in prison, I can't go and do everything. Because Paul was a goer and a mover, don't you think? I mean, journey after journey, he went place to place to place teaching all the time, and now he's in prison. Um, and he could have sat there and said, man, what a, what a bummer. I mean, I'm totally in prison here and I can't do anything. But rather, he was like, you know what I'll do? I'm just going to keep doing what God has me doing. I'm going to keep talking. I'm going to write these letters. I'm going to talk to this guard who can't get away from me. I mean, imagine, I mean, have you seen those helmets that they wear? They couldn't put their fingers in their ears either. They're just, they're stuck. They're like, la, 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 la. Okay, I'm not listening. But they heard. <laughs> Paul, he's in prison. See, he says, I'm in prison for, therefore, because of this, he says, I'm in prison because I would not stop talking, not just about the gospel, but I wouldn't stop talking about how God made everyone who believes in Jesus equal. That's why he's in prison. That's why he's in this situation, I suppose. But see, there's, in the Greek grammar of this sentence that I'm a prisoner for Christ, what he's saying is literally he's saying, Jesus made me a prisoner. Not a prisoner of Jesus. A, literally, a prisoner. Had Paul not been arrested at this time, would he have ever written this letter? I don't know. But maybe not. Paul may never have taken the time to actually stop and write Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, maybe probably never would have met Onesimus on which, whose behalf he wrote the letter to Philemon. If, if Jesus hadn't said, Paul, you need to slow down so that you can catch up with what it is that I want you to do, maybe he would have never written these letters. Maybe this arrest seemed like a bad thing, but... But God had a greater purpose in mind. It's very important to remember that when you find yourself in a time of arrest, perhaps that is the only way the Lord can get you to slow down so that you can catch up to what he has intended for you. <laughs> Whew, it's hot in here. 
Paul the prisoner of Jesus. He says uh, in verse 2, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of grace of God which was given to me for you. Paul says in that, he says, I was chosen by God to help the Gentiles. He actually, what he's going to go on to say over and over again is that it was his undeserved gift of grace to help the Gentiles learn and understand the undeserved gift of grace. You understand, before Paul's conversion, he would have never helped the Gentile do anything other than die. And that was pretty much how it went. Jews did not help Gentiles, and Gentiles did not help Jews. In fact, it was forbidden for any Jewish midwife to help a Gentile have a baby because they thought, no way are we going to help another Gentile come into the world. Every morning, a Jewish man would wake up and he would say, thank you, Lord, that I was not born a dog, a woman, or a Gentile. Sorry, ladies. That was their prayer. Thank you, Lord, I was not born a Gentile or a dog, or a woman. There was no love between the Jews and the Gentiles, and yet Paul now realizes that it's not just he's doing it out of obligation to God, but he considers it an undeserved gift of grace to be able to go to the Gentiles and explain what it means, undeserved gift of grace. His Conversion was so drastic and so complete that now he considered it a gift. So here's my question. Who is it in your life that God is speaking to you about that you have the undeserved gift of grace to go and explain the undeserved gift of grace? Family, they don't understand you. They don't understand your faith. They don't understand the cult that you've joined how you've been brainwashed. They make fun of you. They get mad at you if you bring it up. Thanksgiving is coming, by the way, around the table. Don't talk. Okay, they're coming over. Don't talk about politics. And don't talk about religion. Paul says it's your undeserved gift of grace that you get to share the gospel with them. Maybe it's not your family. Maybe all your family's good. If I went to my house, that's not a problem. My family loves the Lord. So maybe it's the elite educated. Those who think that Christians are dumb, believing in myths and fairy tales, saying that you're ignoring the science or that you've checked your brain at the door. But Paul says it's your undeserved gift of grace to be able to share the undeserved gift of grace with them. But maybe you don't run in those elite educated circles. I certainly don't. <laughs> Maybe it's the wealthy who don't see the need for a savior because they have everything. Maybe it's the working poor because they have nothing but struggle and feel like God has turned their back on them. Maybe it's the generation of 20-somethings who seem to only be able to hear from other 20-somethings who already know everything anyway. Paul says it's our undeserved gift of grace to help them understand the wonderful undeserved gift of grace. See, what Paul's going to say is, it's not that I have to go to the Jews it's, or the Gentiles, it's that I get to go 
to the Jews. It'll change your entire perspective. If you say, it's not that I have to do this, it's that I get to do this. And then everything changes. Verse 3 says, How by the revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of man, as is as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to, to, the holy, to his holy apostles and prophets. Well, Paul speaks of mystery, the mystery. It's the mystery. And he almost is saying it like you just should know it. Like, oh, he revealed it to me, the mystery. Here's the thing. The mystery to us is like, you know, murder she wrote. Something happened. There's something that you don't know. But if you find the clues, you can find the answer. Right? You could solve the mystery. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people look at the Bible as that. It's like, all I have to do is find the clues and I can unlock it all. Actually, the word mystery to them at that point was something that cannot be known until it is revealed to you by God. Something that was not known and could only be known when it was revealed. In fact, the literal translation of mystery was something that's secret that, uh, well, yeah, I wrote it down. Let me see. Um, something that is secret that is only revealed through the, uh, that initiation is necessary. A secret which initiation is necessary. Like a secret handshake. It's as if God is saying, look, there's something that I know that you don't know. You can't find it without my help, but I am going to begin to reveal it. And it's like, and in, if you want to be a member of the club, here's the handshake. Like that. I'll show you later if you want to know. But Paul says he has revealed the mystery to his holy apostles, including me. This, and so you're like, okay, Paul, you know the mystery. What? Tell us what is the mystery? Look at, he answers it in verse six that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. That's the mystery that has been hidden until he, God decided to reveal it to Paul and the apostles. And Paul saying, now I'm telling you, I am revealing it to you. <clears throat> Was this really a mystery? Was it unknown? All these years, did, did the did God change his mind somewhere along the way about the Gentiles? It was like, what, what Paul is saying is that it wasn't like God was saying, these are my people right here and just these people. And then he kept on saying, you know what? I finished the left wing and there's a whole lot more room up here. You know what? Let's just open this to the Gentiles too. Paul, you know what? We're going to change our minds. And actually what Paul's going to say is <clears throat> it's the eternal mystery. It's the thing that has been in place since the very beginning. Only he chose to keep that part of it hidden from them for a time. In verse 7 it says, of which I became a minister according to the gift of grace um, <clears throat> the gift of grace God given to me by the effective working of his power. Paul says, I became a minister. Now, maybe in, in, in your mind, minister is the guy with the suit and the tie who has the big wooden podium on the microphone. And, he's, and that's uh, partly true. Minister, the word, it means what? Do you guys know what minister means literally? Servant. 
It means waiter, actually. If you look it up literally, minister means waiter or servant. So Paul says, I became a servant according to the gift of grace. But it's more than that, actually. It's not just servant. The word means to eagerly, so eager to serve that you kick up dust by moving in a hurry. That's the, wor- that's the word that was used. That's the, that's the usage of the word servant, which means that Paul was saying, I'm so eager to be of service to you according to the gospel that I am kicking up dust trying to bring it to you. And in my mind, I just think of the Flintstones. Like the little feet running like that before they go anywhere and the dust and then they run and the dust comes up. But it's the idea that Paul wasn't just being obedient. He was eager to be of service to everyone about this mystery that he had been told that there was equality between the Gentiles and the Jews in God's family. He was eager to do it. He says in verse 8, to me, who am less than the least of all the saints. Have you ever read that and been like, Paul's really laying it on thick here. I mean, it sounds like a little bit of, you know, over, like too much humility. Like, no, no, I'm the least of the least. (laughs) You know what? Honestly, I don't think so. See, Paul knew who he was before Jesus. He was a chief persecutor of the followers of the way. He made people reject Christ at the point of the sword. Despite this, he recognizes that Jesus didn't just not reject him, but chose him to be an incredibly useful tool for the kingdom of heaven. It would be like if I was building a house and in the process stepped on a nail that went through my shoe and into my foot. I reached down, pull the nail from my foot, and then instead of throwing away, use that nail to finish off my house. That was Paul. And he's just like, there's no reason that God should have chosen to use me in this way. I'm the least of the least. Do you understand how much humility it must have taken Paul to not just obediently share the gospel with the Gentiles, but to consider it a gift to get to do that? The kind of humility that it would take On Tuesday, we did a lesson with the youth group on humility. Right, Joanna? Right. The the definition of humility is freedom from arrogance and pride. Not just don't be arrogant and proud. Freedom from arrogance and pride. A, A biblical definition would be trusting God more than myself. Think about when humility is trusting God more than myself, saying like, I don't need to be lifted up. I don't need to exalt myself. I'm just going to trust God in whatever way he goes. Being filled with the Holy Spirit. I read someone quoted that, um, and again, this is a paraphrase of this quote, but it is like the full vessel is the one that sits the lowest in the water. 
The fuller the vessel, the lower it sits. The fuller you are with the Holy Spirit, the lower you are. That was Paul. Paul would write to them, in, again, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. This is who Paul was. This is who he had become. And so he has this humble attitude. He says, I am the least of the least of all the saints. This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I just love his language, unsearchable riches of his. God is so rich that there is no end to his riches. You could search and search and search and you will never find the end of it. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God. Now, again, he's saying that this understanding that there was going to come one who was the Messiah, who would then unite the two, has been hidden in God. And I think, why would God choose to hide such amazing information? Why would he choose to do that? Why not just tell everybody right from the beginning that was how it was going to be and that's what it was? Why not say what was going to happen? Why hide it? We can speculate all afternoon about why God would choose to hide some information until a certain time. We don't have to speculate because it's here. I'm going to read this to you. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read this. This is Paul's letter. 2 Corinthians, verse 1 through 8. Just listen as I read along. I, and I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimonies of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with pervasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power that your faith should not be the wisdom of men, but the power of God. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained from the ages of our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Do you see what he says? I kept it hidden because if they knew, they would not have crucified Jesus, which was necessary for salvation. And so he says here, God kept this hidden until now because he had to see his plan through that Jesus would come and would die on the cross because if they knew that, they would not have crucified him. And that needed to happen because it is only through his death and resurrection that we are able to have our sins forgiven and that we are able to go to heaven. Amen? And so God says, look, you may not always understand why I do things. And we could sit there without 1 Corinthians. We could sit there and wonder and, and speculate all day. Like, why would God, that doesn't seem very nice of God to keep something so important secret for so long. And God says, no, you don't understand. But in this case, he says, I'm going to tell you why I did it. 
so that my plans would happen exactly as I need them to happen. First sentence says, to the intent that now manifold wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers of the heavenly places according to the eternal purposes which he accomplished in Christ our Lord. You see, again, this is him saying, um, this was the plan from the beginning. This wasn't plan B. Jesus was never plan B. He was always plan A. Verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulation for for you, which is your glory. See, Paul says, because of all of this, that's what the therefore means, because of everything that I've just said to you, don't pity me because I'm in prison. In fact, he says, no, it's a special privilege that I have that God has given me to be in this place because he says not only is it, not just because I've completely turned myself over and surrendered to God, but God is using me in ways that Paul maybe never would have imagined. Although when Paul was in prison in Jerusalem before they went, Jesus came to him and they said, Paul, you're going to go to Rome and you're going to talk to kings. But Paul knew he was on his way. You know, even on the ship that looked like it was going to go down on the way to Rome, uh, he knew. But God already told me I was going to Rome. So <laughs> I don't know about y'all, but I'm going to Rome. And Paul looks at this and he says, don't pity me. Don't feel bad for me because I'm here. God's using me in an incredible way, which I never could have imagined. I'm chained to a Roman all day long. I'm preaching to the Romans. I'm, I'm dictating this letter. Uh, I'm receiving friends. I'm, I'm showing this guy. Uh, uh, I've introduced this guy to Jesus Christ. Paul says, don't pity me for my tribulations for it is your, which is your glory. I'm thankful, he says. For this reason, I bow my knee to the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, it's not just that I'm doing okay. I'm thankful to God. I literally am praying to God and thanking him for the fact that I'm in prison with all of these opportunities that I never would have imagined and maybe would have never done had it not been for this. Have you ever found yourself on the other side of a tribulation and been able to look back and say, I would never have been here if that hadn't happened. In that, you might think, this is the worst thing that could ever happen. This is terrible. I cannot see how this situation will work out for anything but bad. And yet you end up here and you're like, Look at, look what happened as a result. Of, had, I never, had that never happened, I never would have been here. I never would have been able to do this. I would have never had the opportunity to do this had that not happened. Man, here's the trick though, right? To recognize this, when you're here, when you're in the middle of that tribulation to say, I know that at some point I'm going to be there. And I'm going to be able to look back and I'm going to say, man, if that had not happened, I wouldn't have been. And so, you know what? I'm going to live forward in faith right here. I'm going to say, even though I'm in this time that seems hard, that maybe seems like an arrest from my ministry or some other obstacle that I have to get over, I know that the Lord is faithful and that he's got something planned. And you know what? Maybe the something is that he's going to take you home in that time. And wouldn't that be great? 
You guys remember heaven? <laughs> remember talking about that? <sighs> I mean, I think we've all had times when we've been in that place. Can we have times when we're in those places where we think, Lord, what is it? What is it? Who am I chained to that I can share the gospel to? What can I do while I'm in this time that is going to, uh, to bring a smile to your face? Or what can I do in this time? So then when I get here, I can look back and say, look at the amazing stuff that God did. And we give him all the glory on the other side of that tribulation. Because none of the glory belongs to us anyway. <clears throat> he says, uh, for this reason, I bow my knee to the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, for whom the whole family of heaven and earth is named. Again, he repeats that concept of unity between believers in Jesus, whether they're Jew or Gentile. That he would grant you, according to the riches of the glory, to be strengthened with might through his Holy Spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The word dwell there is um, not just live, but that he would be at home. The word dwell means to be at home. So he's saying that the Lord Jesus Christ would be at home in your house. And so I wonder, like, is he at home in your heart? Or is he a guest that comes over for dinner on Sunday? Because if it's like, well, imagine Jesus was here and he came to your house every Sunday for, for Sunday dinner. What would you do? Straighten up. You might put out a couple of extra pictures with Jesus and, you know, like you take the one out of the drawer. Okay, I got to get these pictures out of Jesus. You'd put away the things that you don't want Jesus to see, maybe. You put your computer away. So that when he comes over, he's just like... All right, but you know what? Is Jesus really dwelling? Is he really at home? See, Jesus doesn't just come over on Sunday dinner. He's actually there all the time. And so is your life a place where Jesus will feel at home? If you're sitting there and you're watching TV tonight after everybody else has gone to bed, can you sit there and imagine Jesus on the couch with you, watching that with you, and would he be pleased? Would he be pleased with the things that you're listening to in your car, the music, the talk radio? Would he be pleased with the things that you're sitting there on your computer? I mean, imagine he's right next to you reading it, what you're reading. Would he be saying, oh, that's a good one? Or would he be like, is he dwelling in your heart or are you just picking up on Sunday because he's coming over? That's what he's praying for them. He's saying, I pray that Christ will dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, because there's a purpose that you being rooted and grounded in love, he's saying rooted and grounded means affixed to the foundation of God's supernatural love. Affixed to the foundation of God's supernatural love that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints that which is the width, the length, the depth, and the height. I really love this description. He's, again, he's talking about God's agape or supernatural love. And he's talking about that you would be able to comprehend the length, the width, the depth, and the height. <laughs> Do you know that, um, uh, have you ever had, have you ever had like a, a kid, a, a child or a grandchild come up to you and be like, I love you this much. 
this much. That's about as much. I mean, you can't go more than that, right? If someone comes up to you and be like, oh, I love you this much. You've got room to grow a little bit. You got, you know, <laughs> I love you this much, but you know, <laughs> come Christmas, I could love you more. It really just <laughs> depends. But God isn't saying I love you this much, right? Because there's a limit there. God is saying, I love you this much, 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 this much, I love you this much. God is saying that there is no limit to my love. And Paul is saying, I would that you would comprehend, that you would understand that there is no limit to your guys. Other words, he's saying, you cannot out-sin God's love. I think some of you think you can, and maybe have. I think that you think that in some days you have out-sinned God's love. Yet out of obedience, you come crawling back and saying, Lord, would you please forgive me again? And you feel horrible or you walk around with the weight. We've talked about living with the weight of sin that you've confessed to God already. That gang, he's forgiven you of. Get out from the weight of the condemnation of sin. If you've confessed it to him, he's forgiven you. And there is no limit to his love. You can't exhaust his account of love or grace or mercy. We can, <laughs> You know, when someone comes to you and there's like the fifth time they've done the same thing and you're like, all right, I forgive you, but only because I have to. The word says it, but you know. <laughs> that's not God, but see what we do is that's how we understand it. And so we lay that over top of God as well. It's like, well, if that's how I would do it, that's probably how God would do it. But God was like, no, no. The way you do things isn't the way I do things, God says. The way you think isn't the way I think. The way I forgive isn't the way you forgive. God says, I forgive you, and then I remember it no more. So if you come back to God and say, God, I can't believe I did this again. He says, again, I don't know what you mean, but I forgive you. You cannot outsing God. He, he, Paul says, I want you to understand that. I want you to understand the length, the width, the depth, the height. And to know, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. To know, that word know, remember we've talked about this, isn't just to have a, a comprehension, but it means to experience, to know through experience. He says that I want you to know the love of God through experiencing the love of God, which passes knowledge. That's the same word. <laughs> so... It's kind of like Paul is saying, I want you to experience something that you just can't experience. Sometimes Paul, in his language and in the New King James, it could get a little confusing for me. I don't know, maybe you're smarter than me. So I, I wrote it out different verses. This is how I wrote 17 through 19. It says, this is what Paul says, I pray that the Lord will make himself at home in your heart so that you can be affixed to the foundation of God's love, which I want you to understand points in every direction with no limit so that you can experience God's love in your life, although it is too wonderful to ever fully be experienced and never exhausted or used up. Amen. Is that really possible? God, I don't, I mean, could I rather, I, I, can you really outlove me, Lord? Can you really outlove my sin? Because I'm pretty bad. Look what Paul says now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly 
above all that we ask or think. You see, in that one, exceedingly abundantly. Do you know how much that is? A lot. A lot. And more than you can ask or think. Not just ask, but more than you could even think. He's able to do a lot more according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. At this point, I honestly believe that the scribe's feather is like smoking. And he's like, Paul, please. That was like two sentences, three chapters, and it was two sentences. Please, can we stop? Paul takes a break. I believe that he takes a pause because now from the fourth chapter on, the focus changes from this is who God is and this is what he's done and it is, will blow your mind if you grasp it. Now, based on that, this is what you should do in response. He says, I'm not going to do this. I'm not, we're not going into chapter four, but I, it's worth just saying, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy, a calling, a cord, walk worthy of the calling of which you were called. He says, he, essentially what Paul says is, okay, you've been sitting long enough. It's time to start walking. And that's where we're going to pick it up next week. Let's pray. Lord God, I do thank you so much for this morning and for this time in your word. Lord, I, I do thank you that we have you at the center. Um, none of these are my clever words, Lord, but it's all yours. Lord, I thank you that you did reveal the mystery at the time that you did so that uh, it could be revealed that Jesus makes us all united under the banner of Christ, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we go out of here today, we would take a couple of things with us, Lord. That we would look around and say, who am I chained to? Who is it my undeserved gift of grace to be able to speak to about God's undeserved gift of grace? Lord, let us not be afraid of mocking, but Lord, let us embrace humility, trusting you more than ourselves, Lord. And Lord, I pray that we would embrace the idea that the Lord wants to dwell in our hearts, Lord. All the time, every day, not just once in a while for a visit, Lord. So Lord, as we go out of this place today, I pray that we would be hold on to those, that we would hold on to those ideas, those things that you brought forward in your word today. We thank you, Jesus, and in your name we pray. Amen.